Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Hey, it's time for Unearthed. Yay! This spring, in our previous installment of Unearthed, we speculated on whether the COVID-19 pandemic would thwart our plans to do Unearthed in July. Uh, If you have just started listening to the podcast between, uh, I guess, April-ish and now, this is when we periodically talk about things that have been literally and figuratively unearthed. And we kind of wondered whether there would be a pause on unearthing because of the pandemic. There has not been. I actually saved about as many articles over April, May, and June as I did in the first three months of the year. Uh, But a lot of what I collected was a little bit repetitive or sounded really similar to a find that we just talked about recently. Um, Things like that. So we just have a one-part unearthed this time around instead of two parts. Also, just a note, there's a little thunder happening off at the distance at my house. I don't know if the microphone is going to pick any of it up, but if you're listening <laughs> and you're like, what was that? It was probably, probably What is thunder. all that rumbling? Those girls should eat lunch. <laughs> I mean, that happens sometimes too. Uh-huh. <laughs> In Unearthed 2017, uh, we talked about arts and crafts retail chain Hobby Lobby agreeing to pay a $3 million fine and forfeit thousands of artifacts that have been smuggled into the United States. Then, in Unearthed in July 2018, we discussed the repatriation of those artifacts. Well, back in 2014, Hobby Lobby also purchased a tablet known as the Gilgamesh Dream Tablet for more than $1.6 million. That tablet is 3,600 years old. As its name suggests, it contains a portion of the Epic of Gilgamesh, After this purchase, the tablet went on display at the Museum of the Bible, which was funded by Hobby Lobby founder Steve Green. Officials from the Department of Homeland Security seized the tablet from the museum in 2019. And this May, federal authorities started formally pursuing a forfeiture order to return the tablet to Iraq. According to authorities, Hobby Lobby representatives did ask about the tablet's provenance before making the purchase, but a major auction house, which remains nameless in the paperwork, obfuscated its origins. However, Hobby Lobby also filed a lawsuit against the auction house Christie's, which accused the auction house of, quote, deceitful and fraudulent conduct in connection to a Gilgamesh tablet. Seems likely it might be the same one. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> Also, we did not include this little tidbit in our springtime unearthed edition, which is when it happened. But back in March, it was also reported that none of the Dead Sea Scrolls in the Museum of the Bible's collection are actually authentic. Vindolanda has come up on a couple of previous installments of Unearthed. That's a Roman fort just south of Hadrian's Wall. This time, curators at the Vindolanda Museum have found a toy mouse cut from leather in a bag of scraps, and it dates back to somewhere between the years 105 and 130. This mouse is flat, about 12.2 centimeters or 4.8 inches long. It's cut from a single piece of leather, and it has little marks on it that seem to indicate hair on the mouse's body and the tail, as well as marks for the eyes. This discovery came as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. Excavations at Vindolanda had to be postponed, so the curatorial staff at the museum spent their time, among other things, going through all of the leather pieces in the museum's collection. 
This collection contains more than 7,000 objects, some of them things like shoes, boots, and horse gear, but there are also lots and lots of patches and scraps and offcuts. I kind of love the idea of somebody being like, well, we can't have visitors. We can't do that dig. I'm going to go through this bag of scraps, see what's in here. Um, This mouse may have been made specifically as a child's toy. There is plenty of evidence that there were children at Vendolanda. Or somebody may have made it as a practical joke or just because they were bored. The plan is to put this mouse on display at the Vendolanda Museum. Maybe someone was trying to entertain a cat. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe so. It does seem like a good kick toy for a cat. Right? In our springtime unearthed this year, we talked about the theft of a painting by Vincent van Gogh from the Singer Laren Museum, which is in Laren, Netherlands, not in The Hague, as we said in the episode. Earlier this spring, art detective Arthur Brand received proof-of-life photos of the painting. He released those on June 18th. The photo shows the painting, a copy of the international edition of the May 30th, 2020 New York Times, and the book Master Thief. Brand received a photo of the back of the painting as well. At this point, there's some speculation that this theft is a copycat crime. There's also, like, security footage footage that became available after we recorded that earlier episode that shows it being, like, a pretty much fast-paced smash and grab. The book that is shown in that proof-of-life picture is about the 2002 theft of two different Vincent van Gogh works from an Amsterdam museum, The newspaper that's shown in the picture has a story on the front page titled Notes on an Art Heist from One Who Has Done It, and it's about the singer Laren theft, but it quotes extensively one of the men who was convicted of that earlier 2002 heist. This sounds like such a good movie. It's like the way that serial killers in fiction movies are portrayed as taunting the police, and except this one would be about art theft. Hmm. I'd go to that movie. Me too. Um, (laughs) A veterinarian in England stumbled across a stone memorializing a previous outbreak of rinderpest. An image of the stone was posted on the Nantwich Farm Vet's Facebook page in May. And that stone read, quote, Near this place were buried 43 cows, seven calving heifers, five yearling heifers, one bull, 20 calves that died in the months of February and March 1866 of the rinderpest then raging in Cheshire, belonging to John Sutton of Moston Manor. Our episode on the eradication of rinderpest came out in April of this year, so that's just another piece of that puzzle. Yeah, I I think all of those numbers that Holly just read are correct. I was reading them off of a picture of, uh, you know, a stone dating back to the 19th century. (laughs) There were a couple where I was like, is that a seven or a one? Uh, In a different update, which is related to multiple past episodes, including Red Summer and our one on Ida B. Wells Barnett, according to a new report that was issued by the Equal Justice Initiative in June, more than 6,500 Black Americans were lynched between 1865 and 1950. This report included 2,000 that took place during Reconstruction but were not included in the organization's earlier reports. So whenever we have talked about numbers of lynchings that have taken place in the past, like, these numbers are much larger than that. In our previous installment of Unearthed, we talked about a decision by the U.S. Secretary of the Interior, David Bernhardt, ruling that the Mashpee Wampanoag's 300 acres of reservation land on Cape Cod would be taken out of trust and the reservation disestablished. We noted in that discussion that the tribe had a previously filed lawsuit that was still pending when that decision was announced. 
That lawsuit was related to a 2018 Department of the Interior decision that the tribe had not been under federal jurisdiction in 1934. Yeah, that decision about 1934 jurisdiction ties back into this whole disestablishment question. So a 45-day halt was placed on the order to disestablish the reservation. And on the last day of that order, federal judge Paul L. Friedman issued a ruling in that earlier lawsuit. Friedman ruled that the Department of the Interior's 2018 decision was faulty, calling it, quote, arbitrary, capricious, an abuse of discretion, and contrary to law, The overall issue is still a little unsettled at this point, though, because now the Department of the Interior has to go back and reevaluate that 2018 decision. This isn't an update exactly, but it is on a similar theme, and it happened literally as Tracy was writing this paragraph. Uh, On July 9th, the U.S. Supreme Court issued a decision in McGirt versus Oklahoma, which also applies to another case, Sharp versus Murphy, that the eastern half of Oklahoma is Native American land for the purpose of federal criminal law. This is a way bigger story than we can get into here, but the podcast This Land, which is hosted by Rebecca Nagel, is an excellent resource on it if you want to follow up and get some more details. Yes. I mean, in general, even before the the ruling was announced, like it had already formed an, an extensive body of very useful work on the context for that. There is an episode that I think will be out by the time this episode of Unearthed comes out, but it doesn't exist as of when we are recording it, that it is specifically about the decision and the impact that it is going to have. Um, moving on. Bones have been found in the walls of the Chapelle Expatoire in Paris. This is a memorial chapel that was built in the 19th century on the site of the former Madeleine Cemetery. That cemetery is where Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette were buried after being executed during the French Revolution. When this chapel was built, their remains, or at least the remains people were pretty sure were theirs, had been exhumed and reinterred at the Basilica of Saint-Denis. Madeleine Cemetery was one of the ones established to hold the remains of people who were guillotined during the French Revolution and the Reign of Terror. It closed in 1794, and before the bones were discovered in the chapel walls, it was believed that all the remains had been removed and ultimately placed in the ossuary in the Paris catacombs. We covered the catacombs on the show in October of 2019. But it turns out there are actually four ossuaries in the walls of the lower chapel. They may contain the remains of as many as 500 people. Some of them are among the most prominent people to be guillotined, including Madame Dubarry and Olympe de Gouges. As a super quick note, and changing gears quite a bit, in June, NASA announced that its headquarters building in Washington, D.C. would be named after engineer Mary Winston Jackson, who we covered on the show in February of 2019. And in our last update for this edition of Unearthed, here's a headline from the art newspaper that is dated June 18th, 2020. Quote, has Yale's mysterious Voynich manuscript finally been deciphered? (laughs) Every time someone writes that headline, I just want to call their office and go, no, baby, no. Uh, What follows reads pretty much like every other Voynich Manuscript update we have talked about over the years, of which there have been many, which is why I say that we could say that. So uh, it seems safe to say it is not. No, baby, no, to answer your question. (laughs) This one also seemed to get a lot less traction than a lot of the previous 
you know, outsider says that they have cracked the code based on apparently specious reasoning. Yeah, I, I, my very favorite to the ones of like bored hobbyist cracks Voynich manuscript in ten days, and I'm always like, this reads like a quick weight loss ad. Like it just (laughs) no, no, no. Uh, yeah. Do you want to take a quick break before we get into some scientific stuff? Let's do. Next, as Holly alluded to before the break, we have a few things that sit at the intersection between science and history. First, according to various headlines, you can see the 12th century murder of Thomas Beckett, Archbishop of Canterbury, in a 72-meter-long ice core from the Swiss-Italian Alps. That sentence might seem like kind of a stretch. Sensational. (laughs) Uh, That does kind of skip a step. Um, Beckett was killed by four of King Henry II's knights in 1170 after a long dispute between the archbishop and the monarch over the interplay between ecclesiastical and secular law. The king later performed an act of public penance for his role in all of this, and he also arranged and funded the construction of several monasteries. Those monasteries are really where this ice core comes in. The ice core shows an increase in lead pollution toward the end of the 12th century. And then tax records from that same period show an uptick in English lead and silver production. So the conclusion here is that both the production and the pollution trace back to the materials that were needed for the roofs of those monasteries that were built after the murder of Thomas Beckett. These researchers also traced correlations between lead production, atmospheric lead, and other political events, wars, and crusades between 1170 and 1220. They concluded that Britain was the major source of lead pollution during this period. And another Thomas Beckett news, there is now a 3D rendering of the original Shrine of Thomas Beckett, which was destroyed during the Protestant Reformation. This uh, recreates what the shrine would have looked like in the year 1408, And it was released to the public for the 800th anniversary of the translation of Beckett's remains from the crypt in Canterbury Cathedral to this shrine. Jumping tracks once again. Uh, In what has been described as a real breakthrough, a team publishing in the journal Nature has developed a new way to determine the age of pottery. Radiocarbon dating only works on organic material, but pottery is mostly inorganic. And this means that a lot of the time, people have to figure out the age of pottery by comparing it to organic materials from the same site, rather than being able to test the pottery itself. In the words of Professor Richard Evershed from the University of Bristol, who led the research team, quote, being able to directly date archaeological pots is one of the holy grails of archaeology. The method described in the paper Accurate Compound-Specific 14C Dating of Archaeological Pottery Vessels doesn't exactly date the pottery itself. It tests the lipid residues left behind when the pottery was used in food preparation. To do this, researchers have to use high-resolution nuclear magnetic resonance spectroscopy and mass spectrometry to pinpoint the residues and then to confirm that they are pure enough to provide an accurate date. The team used their method on pottery fragments that had already been precisely dated through other methods, and they found that it was extremely accurate. It's possible that this method could narrow the date range for a piece of pottery down to a human lifespan. Uh, This is something that was, um, it was actually announced before 
our most recent unearthed installment came out, but it was more heavily promoted just afterward. And a lot of very excited people tagged us into (laughs) things on Twitter that were like, here's something you can talk about on the next unearthed. Moving on. Forestry and Land Scotland has been using drone surveys conducted by a company called Skyscape Survey to create 3D models of terrain. And in May, they announced that they had completed a survey of an earthen rampart that's known as Wallace's House. The resulting contour model roughly matches a survey map of that same area that was published in 1857. Headlines about this work read along the lines of William Wallace's Hill Fort Discovered, But this was really an aerial survey and modeling of an area that was already known and previously mapped. And though it's long been associated with William Wallace, he died in 1305, so centuries passed between his death and the creation of that 1857 survey map. In the words of Forestry and Land Scotland archaeologist Matt Ritchie, quote, Could the fort really have been built by William Wallace and his men? I'd like to think so. And either way, the survey has added a new chapter to an old story. Yeah, it's sort of the popular lore is that it was Wallace's, but like haven't quite substantiated that at this point. Researchers from UC Davis have concluded that Neanderthals preferred to use the bones of specific animals when making leatherworking tools known as lissoir. According to the analysis, the tools were mostly made from bovine bones, so things like bison and aurochs. But based on the other bones that were part of the same deposit, reindeer were actually the ones that were more commonly used as a food source, so the use of bovine bones seems to have been intentional. Reindeer bone would have been a lot more plentiful and easy to come by, but bovine bone, specifically the ribs, would have been larger and more rigid for making these tools. Maybe the coolest part of all of this? The team didn't want to damage the bones to collect samples to analyze, so they used residues from inside the plastic containers where the bones had been stored, and that was enough material to analyze through a mass spectrometer. Now we're going to move on to a few unearthings uh, related to books and letters. Four fragments of the Dead Sea Scrolls that were believed until now to be blank have been discovered to actually contain text, just not text that's visible to the naked eye. The government of Jordan had given these fragments to a leather expert back in the 1950s to study their composition. Seemed like good candidates to do that work because everyone thought they were blank. After that work was complete, the fragments were placed in storage, and then they eventually made their way to the University of Manchester. Professor Joan Taylor was looking through the collection for items that might warrant further study and discovered a mark that looked like a possible letter. That find led a team to image 51 scroll fragments using multispectral imaging. Based on that work, four of the fragments do contain readable text. The largest of them contains 15 or 16 letters, including the word Shabbat or Sabbath. In other Dead Sea Scroll news, uh, after the scrolls were first discovered in caves in 1946, they weren't really excavated in a methodical way, and many of them passed through an assortment of traders and dealers before being gathered for study. Plus, the scrolls have disintegrated over the last 2,000 years, meaning that what we describe as the Dead Sea Scrolls is really about 25,000 fragments that don't necessarily carry any indication of which pieces go together or what order they were written in. Sometimes there are newer copies of a text that can serve as a guide, but that is not always the case. 
So one team is trying to resolve some of this by using DNA fingerprinting to match up fragments that were written on skins that all came from the same animal. Logically, they probably go together. And it's also possible that fragments that came from closely related animals, like, say, two different cows from the same herd, they might be connected as well. The team has made some surprising discoveries, one being that fragments including the biblical book of Jeremiah actually came from two completely different animals, one a sheep and one a cow, suggesting that these might actually be two different copies of the same book that have been merged together during the research process. And now we'll move on to something that's sort of book-adjacent. Archaeologists in London may have found the remains of the Red Lion Theater, which was the first known purpose-built theater of the Elizabethan era. The theater was built around 1567, although its exact location has been the subject of debate. This excavation took place in advance of construction work, and it unearthed a building that roughly matches the dimensions of the Red Lion, which we know because of its being mentioned in two lawsuits in 1567 and 1569. The excavation also found the remains of other buildings built over the century or so that followed, including what may have been the Red Lion Inn. That find included two beer cellars, complete with bottles and tankards. I know, I I love the fact that we know the dimensions of this theater because of lawsuits. (laughs) It it makes me um, feel less uh, crabby about litigious people. I'm like, well, they're creating a (laughs) historical record. I also didn't go down the rabbit hole of figuring out exactly what the lawsuits were about, but I'm imagining it was the neighbors being crabby about the theater noise. And now we can just, on that note, take a little quick break for a sponsor. Whenever I work on these unearthed episodes, I always wind up with some random discoveries that seem pretty cool, but they don't really fit together into a category, and I just throw them into a pile that I call potpourri, like on Jeopardy. This is where we are. Uh, Researchers have tried to resolve the question of whether bronze swords that have been found in various parts of Europe were made for decorative or ceremonial purposes or if they were used as weapons. And they did this by making replicas of them and fighting with them. Uh, This is part of a bigger project known as the Bronze Age Combat Project. I feel like this is the dream for so many people. (laughs) I know. It's it's not the first time we've talked about doing stuff with replica weapons. Like there was one where there were javelin throwers that were throwing, but this one to me is more delightful, the fighting with the bronze swords. Oh, yeah. For this research, Raphael Hermann of the University of Göttingen commissioned seven cast bronze swords and then struck them against one another in a methodical way uh, and recorded the results. Since that's not actually like combat, he also worked with some medieval combat enthusiasts who dueled with the replicas while being recorded with high-speed cameras. And then the team compared the wear marks from these duels to more than 2,500 wear marks found on 110 actual Bronze Age swords. So what they found was that, yes, it appears that even though bronze is a pretty soft material that doesn't necessarily seem ideal for making swords out of, these swords were actually used for fighting. The team also found that the wear patterns on those 110 Bronze Age swords were connected to the sword's age and where it was found. So that suggests that there were very specific and 
precise fighting techniques that arose in different areas and evolved over time. The team used similar methods to study Bronze Age spears and shields as well. They published their results in the Journal of Archaeological Method and Theory in April under the title Bronze Age Swordsmanship, New Insights from Experiments and Wear Analysis. Moving on, a clay pipe found by an amateur bottle hunter in Tasmania in 2016 has turned out to be one of the oldest known depictions of the now extinct thylacine, also called the Tasmanian tiger. It is also the first clay pipe known to have been made locally in Tasmania rather than imported to the island from somewhere else. The pipe's age and origins are a bit of a mystery, though. The bottles it was found with date back to about 1830, suggesting it's almost 200 years old. But the pipe's stem is decorated with a kookaburra, and kookaburras were not introduced into Tasmania until 1903. It is possible that whoever made the pipe had lived in Australia or New Guinea, or that it actually depicts some other bird. Uh, I learned as I was reading about this, there's a whole organization that's specifically dedicated to tracking down depictions and other evidence of um, of thylacines, which I just I was like, that's a great, <laughs> great interest <laughs> for somebody to have and pursue so excitedly. Uh, archaeologists near Verona, Italy, have been unearthing the floor mosaics and foundations of a Roman villa dating back to the 3rd century, This is not actually a new discovery. The villa was first found back in the 1920s, but it wasn't excavated at that time. Um, It did take some hunting to find it again in more recent years, though. Excavation work started in October of 2019, and it continued until February, and then that had to be suspended until May because of the pandemic. A lot of people tagged us into a Twitter thread about uh, that that described it as what could be the year's biggest discovery. But really, all the information that there is to share uh, about it at this point is what we just said, and then like a handful of pictures. That's like five pictures, I think. They are really pretty. Uh, I, I don't want to take away from the fact that it does look like a very beautiful floor mosaic. But, like, at this point, it's it's not clear if there's something that's clearly setting it apart from the many other Roman-era floor mosaics that have survived until today. Don't really know yet. All very preliminary. In other news, archaeologists excavating a Song Dynasty tomb in China's Hunan province have unearthed a burial site of a married couple. It was pretty common for spouses to be buried together, but what makes this tomb more unique is an element that was described as a fairy bridge— a small window connecting the two sections of the tomb, which is an indicator that this couple would continue their marriage in the afterlife. I love this story so much. Me too. So sweet. I want a fairy bridge, except that I don't want to be buried. Uh, we have, <laughs> we've only got one edibles and potables discovery to talk about this time around. So we're putting that one here. Uh, Research at three sites in eastern Ethiopia has revealed that halal butchering practices and Islamic dietary standards predate the first major mosques and Muslim burial sites that are there by 400 years. Those major religious sites were built around the 12th century, although it is possible that there were smaller mosques built earlier than that which have not yet been discovered. In addition to that find, they found evidence at Harla, which is one of the three sites that was studied, of imported fish that had been brought in from the Red Sea. Since they did not find the fish heads, this suggests that the fish were being processed and preserved when they were caught before being transported into the region. It came from Cannery Row. (laughs) (laughs) 
Uh, Switching gears again, we have got a couple studies related to the Amazon. According to a paper published in the journal Nature, people in southwest Amazonia about 10,000 years ago created what is described as artificial forest islands. Today, the area is covered by forested areas surrounded by savanna, and the savanna is flooded from December through March. But people built mounds that would have stayed above the water level during the rainy season, allowing trees to grow, thus the forest islands. This conclusion followed remote sensing of 61 archaeological sites in northern Bolivia. This adds to just a growing body of knowledge about how much people influenced the forest itself uh, before Europeans arrived there. Um, research in the same area also suggests that people in the Amazon started started domesticating manioc about 11,000 years ago, meaning that this region is one of the places on Earth where people started domesticating plants all at roughly the same time. It lines up with rice domestication in what's now China, grain domestication in the Middle East, bean and squash domestication in Mesoamerica, and potato and quinoa domestication in the Andes. According to a study published in the journal Global Ecology and Biogeography, soil enrichment techniques used in eastern and southern Amazonia before the arrival of Europeans continues to influence the region's biodiversity today. Specifically, they compared flora growing in Amazonian dark earth. That's usually uh, shortened as ADE. And they compared it with flora in non-ADE soil. The dark earth was created as the region's early inhabitants used charcoal and food waste to enrich the soil. So the researchers found that these areas with dark earth still have richer plant diversity than areas without it. Areas with dark earth also had a higher pH and more nutrients present in the soil. There are definitely some dark earth areas that are still being used by local and indigenous populations, but the soil also continued to be richer with more diverse plant life in places where it hasn't been actively used in centuries. Shipwreck time, uh, which will make some of our listeners happy. The remains of a shipwreck in York, Maine, have been tentatively identified as the Defiance, which was originally built in 1754. Studying this wreck has been pretty tricky. Its position on the beach means that it's continually being uncovered and reburied by the sea, especially after storms. Its first documented appearance was in 1958. After that, it vanished again before re-emerging in 1978, 2007, 2013, and 2018. Marine archaeologist Stephen Clayson worked to ID the find by sending a sample of one of the timbers to the Cornell University Tree Ring Laboratory, which suggested that it came from a tree that had been cut down in 1753. With that starting point, Clayson dug through notary records for a match. The Defiance wrecked on York Beach in a storm in 1769, and it had initially been built in Massachusetts in 1754. All four of the crew that were aboard survived the wreck. In interviews, Clayson stressed the need to try to conserve what is left of this wreckage because every time it re-emerges from the sand, people flock to the area to look at it and take pictures, and some of them go home with pieces of the wreck that they have taken as souvenirs. Oh, that happens all the time for various things. In another piece of news, a 2,000-year-old boat has been found under the waterfront in Porich, Croatia. This is one of three similar boats that have been found on land in Croatia rather than as part of an underwater survey. 
So this find has been described as a particularly well-preserved example of a sewn ship. The wood itself has been preserved, as well as the wooden nails and the rope that was used to actually sew the vessel together. Although this seems to be a Roman ship, the sewing technique that was used to build it is older. The battleship USS Nevada was struck when Japanese forces attacked Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, on December 7, 1941. The vessel managed to get underway before being hit again, and its crew had to beach it. After it was repaired, it survived the Battle of Attu, the D-Day invasion, and the invasion of Iwo Jima and Okinawa before serving as a target during atomic bomb tests after the war was over. It survived nuclear tests at Bikini Atoll, and although it was radioactive at that point, it was towed to a point off the Hawaiian Islands where it continued to be used for target practice, which it continued to survive before being scuttled by an aerial torpedo in 1948. The Navy knew its approximate location, but teams from private firms Search Incorporated and Ocean Infinity discovered the actual wreckage in May of this year. Their ships had stayed at sea due to the coronavirus pandemic, which also put a pause on some of their other commercial work. Yeah, I interpreted their statements about it as basically saying, well, we're out here on the ocean. Let's look around. <laughs> Y'all want to go look for a shipwreck? <laughs> Uh, We have one repatriation to talk about this time around. The Exeter City Council in England has voted to return a collection of items that belonged to Siksika First Nation Chief Crowfoot to the Siksika First Nation in Alberta, Canada. These items had been at the Royal Albert Memorial Museum. That acquisition had dated back to the signing of Treaty 7 between the government of Canada and five First Nations one of those First Nations being the Siksika, who are also known as the Blackfoot. Formal negotiations for the return of the items started back in 2010, with visits from Siksika Nation to Exeter and vice versa in 2013 and 2014. But then the negotiations stalled for years. A climate-controlled room had already been prepared to house the regalia at Blackfoot Crossing Historical Park, but the actual return has been delayed, like so many things we've talked about on this unearthed, due to COVID-19 travel restrictions. As of when we are recording this, it is uncertain when this may happen. The Siksika First Nation is in the middle of a spike in COVID cases. Yeah, like so many Indigenous and First Nations communities, like things seem really treacherous at this moment. Um, We have two exhumations to talk about, both of which also could have been updates. Uh, We have talked about the exhumation of Salvador Dali for paternity testing in previous installments of Unearthed. In May, a Spanish court ordered Pilar Abel, who had requested the exhumation in order to prove whether she was Salvador Dali's daughter, to pay all the costs associated with it. It It's an estimated 7,000 euros. Our previous updates included the fact that the DNA tests revealed that Dali was not her father, but not that Pilar Abel had then filed an additional suit contending that the chain of custody had been interrupted when the remains were gathered and analyzed. So she's contesting that whole thing. Yeah, the judge did not find that to be substantiated. In April the Texas Historical Commission approved a plan to exhume four sets of remains from the Alamo to allow for ongoing preservation work there. The plan was to temporarily keep the remains in a collections vault, and then once the work is complete, to reinter them on Alamo grounds. 
There have been several controversies connected to this exhumation as different groups of people whose ancestors are buried at the Alamo have disagreed on how to proceed. One issue is DNA testing. The committee that established the protocol for how human remains should be handled at the Alamo included representatives from several federally recognized indigenous peoples, many of whom do not agree with conducting DNA testing of remains for religious or cultural reasons. But those representatives do not include the Tap-Pilam Kwawi-Tekin Nation, which is not federally recognized, and it is possible that a third or more of the people buried at the Alamo were Kwawi-Tekin-speaking peoples. Unlike many of the other nations involved, Tap-Pilam is in favor of DNA testing. In June, the Texas Historical Commission also recognized the Alamo's church as a verified cemetery, but denied requests to have the area surrounding the church recognized as an unverified cemetery. That would have affected ongoing work at the Alamo Plaza. That work is also highly controversial. I learned that there is a whole world of controversy about the Alamo and the restoration projects and the plaza projects that is all going on right now. Uh, And then our final thing, (laughs) this... Uh, According to Tracy, gets the best headline award. It wouldn't for me because of subject matter, but it is The Origin of Feces, Copro ID Reliably Predicts Sources of Ancient Poop. So we have talked about various discoveries that have been made through analyzing coprolites or fossilized feces on the show before. One of the challenges in this work is figuring out exactly which species the feces came from. This can be especially challenging for researchers when they're trying to distinguish human feces from dog feces because they tend to have a similar size and composition. Prehistoric humans and dogs also often lived in the same place and ate similar food. It can even be tricky to tell them apart using DNA analysis because some ancient cultures used dogs as a food source and dogs, current dogs, would still do this, I'm sure, have also scavenged human feces for food. Current dogs will scavenge... Any animals' feces for yeah, food. any any feces, yeah. <laughs> Copro ID tackles this problem, combining analysis of the host DNA with machine learning predictions based on analysis of modern gut microbiomes to accurately determine the source of the feces. In the words of Christina Weriner, senior author of the study, quote. One unexpected finding of our study is the realization that the archaeological record is full of dog poop. I just felt like that was, I could not end on any other story than that one. (laughs) Although, you know, as an animal person, that just does not surprise me. Of course it's full of dog poop. (laughs) (laughs) I interpreted that as meaning there is poop that we thought was human that is not. Which is hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. Um, (laughs) uh, Tracy, you had mentioned to me before we started that we're not doing listener mail for this one. Not exactly. Rather than trying to read any one particular email, we have gotten several emails and notes on Facebook and tweets and whatnot over the last few weeks um, asking about our website. Uh, And we've talked about it uh, previously on the show, but since it's been a while and since uh, clearly folks are still like, hey, what happened to your website? I thought we would recap it uh, again and also give folks some tips for finding stuff like finding old episodes of the show. So, Uh, Basically, our old website, which was full of pictures and tags and show notes and whatnot, uh, that was custom-made when we were part of a website called How Stuff Works. Um, 
It had a bunch of features that had been cobbled together over many, many years from a bunch of sources. Like the tags were a carryover from when our podcast website used to be on WordPress. And when we stopped using WordPress, the How Stuff Works team like custom made a tag feature to carry all that over. So in 2017, the How Stuff Works podcasts spun off into our own business. And then iHeartRadio bought that business in September of 2018. And then for more than a year after that, the remaining How Stuff Works team kept on maintaining the old website. That just could not continue forever. At some point, we had to move on to the infrastructure of the company that actually owns our podcast. Uh, and so that happened, I think, at, was that was at the beginning of this year at this point. Does that sound right? No, I think it was earlier than that, but maybe I'm wrong. Uh, I think I feel like it was at the beginning of this year because I have a spreadsheet that has all the old tags on it and it ends December 2019. <laughs> um, but, I mean, that, who knows, though? Uh, it's it's all kind of blurring together. Things that happened in January of this year feel like they happened before I was born at this point. Um, so uh, we were working on a solution, at least for the show notes, uh, because we both feel like the show notes are really important to show people what the sources are for all of our episode and to give credit to everybody who has worked on those sources for doing their work. Uh, we were working on a solution for that, and then a pandemic happened, and that just totally upended both the like the the logistical and the the working like the people and the financial resources. Like all of that just got like somebody just. Just just shook the picnic blanket with all of that <laughs> stuff on it. Yeah. Um, so I don't, we don't know at this point when we will have a show note resources. So, or a show note uh, thing that people can access. So easiest way to find old episodes of the show on the internet is to Google the topic you're looking for and the words missed in history all as part of the same search. Um, that's actually how I was doing it with the old website. <laughs> yeah, I, it, I do that all the time. Yeah, it works 90 to 95% of the time. There's a tiny number of uh, of episodes that for some reason, Google just hasn't indexed, and there are a few things that are named weirdly that don't come up, but 90% of the time, that will work. Uh, the easiest way to scroll through a whole list of the episodes is actually to just use an app. Uh, like, for example, Apple Podcasts. Um, like that, that if you are subscribed to the show, we'll show you the entire archive that you can just scroll on through. If you need specific show notes for something, um, like let's say you're working on a school project and it would really help you out to be able to see the sources for an episode, uh, email us within reason. We will try to help you out. Um, we did not have transcripts of all the old episodes, which is something that like we, we have really wanted to have for a long time and we don't for a lot of reasons that are outside of our control individually, but for the sh the episodes that we did have transcripts of, I still have those transcripts. So if you need one, email, and and if we have it, I will send it to you. Um, our email address is historypodcast at iheartradio.com. Our previous How Stuff Works email address is now officially, finally, no longer delivering email to us anymore. Um, that continued to work for many months. So if you want to email us, that's the, the one to use it is historypodcast at iheartradio.com. Uh, I don't, is, do you have anything to add to all of that, Holly? <laughs> well, I had a question for you because I thought Apple only had 300 episodes. Apple only has 300 episodes in the store. So if you're in the Apple Podcast store, uh, pretty much 
any podcast that doesn't have a lower limit manually set, it's a maximum of 300 episodes. But if you are subscribed to the show and you look in your library, it should have all of it. Do you like how I staged that question so that we would know? Because I know it comes up all the time. <laughs> it does come up all the time. <laughs> um, and I mean, that I, I can't speak to how every single podcast app works because there's so many of them and uh, most of them are free and you can try as many as you want to find one that that suits your needs. But that also means that like we usually, usually can't answer individual questions about how anything besides Apple Podcast works because that's the one that's like been around the longest um, and as you know, that's the that's the app that's on my phone. Although I listen to podcasts like a caveman by manually syncing a click wheel iPod to a computer. I'm I'm still somewhat befuddled by this practice, but I know, it makes I know, you happy. Who cares? It's not even that. It's just that I've been doing it for so long, and I especially because uh, because of the pandemic, I'm no longer walking to go on errands nearly as much. Also, to be frank, I'm not cleaning as much. And those are the times that I usually listen to podcasts. So I have this giant backlog of podcasts and like trying to recreate that on my phone to listen to like a more up-to-date human person is just like, it's one thing I don't have time. Ty, I have plenty of time. I don't have the mental space to do it right now. <laughs> Fair. Uh, don't have the middle space for a lot of things. I'm sure that's like everyone. Again, we hope everyone is uh, is being able to take as, as good a care of themselves as possible. I know things are incredibly hard right now for most people in a lot of ways. So uh, anyway, if you'd like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at historypodcast at iheartradio.com. And then you'll also find us on social media at Missed in History. Real, like, for example, that's our Twitter name is Missed in History. Uh, our website, as we have said, is mistinhistory.com. And you can subscribe to our show on the iHeartRadio app and Apple Podcasts and anywhere else you get a podcast. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. <laughs> 